Welcome to Reinventing Home, an exploration of culture, creativity, and character. I'm your host, Valerie Andrews, and today we're going to talk about home on the largest scale imaginable, our place in the universe. My guest is Brian Swim, a professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies and author of The Hidden Heart of the Cosmos, a book about how the universe was born. For more than 30 years, Brian has been teaching evolutionary cosmology to graduate students, but he's more than a scientist. He's a storyteller, intent on bringing awe and wonder back into our lives with a new understanding of this galaxy, this solar system, this Earth. His first book, The Universe is a Green Dragon, explores the 14-billion-year trajectory of the birth of the cosmos. He since co-authored The Universe Story with Thomas Berry, and produced a DVD series including Canticle to the Cosmos, The Earth's Imagination, and The Powers of the Universe. Most recently, Brian flew to Samos, the birthplace of Pythagoras, to host the Emmy Award-winning film Journey of the Universe, drawing on discoveries in astronomy, geology, biology, and the humanities to tell the greatest story ever told, how we came to call this planet home. Brian, welcome to Reinventing Home. I'd like to begin by asking you this. As a scientist and a storyteller, what image comes to mind when you think of the word home? And here we are on Earth, on our little cozy planet. But if we realize that the Milky Way galaxy as a whole gave birth to our stellar system, when the Milky Way created the sun, and the earth comes out of the sun, we begin to realize that, wow, the roots of our existence, they go right back into this process we call the Milky Way. And so, wow, we sprouted forth. And so this, this is our home. This is what gave birth to us. So I like, I like thinking of Milky Way Galaxy as my home. Is part of the reason that we don't have that sense of awe and wonder because we are so deprived of looking at a natural sky? I'm thinking of all the ambient light that interferes with our direct perception of the universe. What do we really see of what's out there? How much has that changed in the last generation or two? Well, that, um, of course, is the great sadness. So I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. The San Francisco Bay Area has blotted out the universe for its, its inhabitants. You know, on a good night, an indigenous person in, in the past could see uh, three to 4,000 stars. And now that experience is almost impossible if you're living inside of the city. In San Francisco, when you look up at night, you can see 30 stars, <laughs> 30. So there are three to 4,000 that are just wanting to come through, but they can't. They can't get through the the pollution. Oh, now, we've actually lost that much. Yeah. That much, that, of our, much. that much of our depth perception of the universe is gone. So right now we're awfully stuck on where we are in Google Maps and where we are in our GPS, but we don't have a creation myth. <laughs> 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 and, and, yet the, and yet we do. We have the makings of, uh, of a new creation myth, which is certainly what I've devoted my life to. We now have direct empirical evidence that around 14 billion years ago, the universe was very small, small as a walnut, and very simple. It just consisted of elementary particles. And so over those 14 billion years, 
the universe has been developing. They brought forth stars and galaxies and planets and butterflies and skyscrapers so that we, we find ourselves inside an amazing creative story. Really, as small as a walnut in the beginning, can you, can you tell me how something could expand from something so tiny to something so vast? Right now, the universe consists of around 2 trillion galaxies, each galaxy having around 100 billion stars. No human up until our time knew this. They had no idea that we had there 2 trillion galaxies. I mean, that was a big question is, is there one galaxy, Milky Way, or are there many? And now we have this sense of this vast, vast universe. And we also know that it came from a very, very small space, very small. So how something the size of a walnut can give birth to two trillion galaxies, if I can give the scientific theory, but we have to, we have to remain in the state of awe that we actually have located the birth of the universe, and it was something the size of a walnut and gave birth to the, all of us. And that's the great thing about a creation myth. It just shatters our preconceptions about the nature of existence. What I'm getting from, from your description of this creation from nothing, this creation ex nihilo, this way something can come where there was nothing at all before. The most startling discovery, I think, uh, in, in all of modern science is this expansion of the universe. But the second most startling discovery is the realization that, that elementary particles are emerging to existence out of emptiness. The word in science is the quantum field. So the quantum field is, is the, the primary reality and it, it doesn't have things. It simply is a realm that gives birth to things. So that we've discovered this generative realm that pervades the universe. Yeah, that blows my mind all the time. So all the particles that, that seem so solid and that for so long we thought were eternal, they're not. They're all these momentary excitations of the quantum field. It means that everything we look at is kind of like a flame. Well, you know, this, this has a lot of implications, I think, for social theory. When we think of how Darwinism affected social theory, we, we have to look at the next scientific big idea and ask how that is likely to affect social theory as well. Let me give you a discovery in contemporary cosmology that has kind of amazing implications for social theory. Here it is. So we discovered that the galaxies, I just talked about two trillion galaxies, that they're all expanding away from each other. And this expansion is strange. The simplest way of saying it is that when we look out from the Milky Way galaxy, and we're looking at the other galaxies out there, they are all moving away from us. And on the basis of that, we conclude that we are at the center of the expansion. But here's the kicker. If we found ourselves at another galaxy far, far out in the universe, and we looked out from that point, we would see all the galaxies expanding away from that point. Uh. So we, we're, we're, we're in a very weird situation compared to what we thought. We live in a universe 
where every point is the center of the universe. Now, this goes against the whole modern era that had this idea that we could arrive at a single perspective and see the truth, right? And that perspective might be America. It might be communism. It might be Taoism. It might be Christianity. But we're discovering something different. We're discovering that all of those perspectives could be at the center and could have something valuable to offer. So it, even something as simple as, well, the human, the human is the, the ultimate species, and that point of view is what, is, is what really matters and what it counts. No. From this new orientation, every species is central to the whole web of life. And I think that, is that this understanding seeps into our social theory, and we begin to realize that every culture, every race, every civilization has something central to offer we will be in a, a very different world than we are in right now. Oh, that is beautifully put. You know, the other thing that's fascinated me has been our discussion of dust and that the particles that were present at the Big Bang are still present here and now. We have a direct line back in time to the creation so that in a way that the, the dust that's under our beds and on our bookshelves, we're talking about a kind of primal material that's, that's always existed since the beginning of the universe, aren't we? Uh, yeah, we are. All of the hydrogen atoms of our body come from a time almost 14 billion years ago. Each of us has been assembled by the universe. Each of us, the hydrogen atoms come from the very, very beginning. And then later on, the stars explode, and they give birth to calcium atoms and phosphorus atoms. So those parts of us uh, come from then. Our cells still have the same dynamics of the first early cells. So this is a 14-billion-year construction. Each of us is just this individual by the name of Brian or Valerie or whatever. And yet each of us is the entire universe in a very particular mode. One of my favorite groups is the, the Mismane Indians in South America. And they, they have a very simple point. They say, in order to be human, one must dwell upon the immensities, the immensities of the universe. I just love that. In order to be human, you don't just have to be an adult with a job, you know, with credit cards. You have to dwell in the immensities of the universe because... That is your larger self. And so, so we're discovering this kind of this insight that has been cherished by indigenous groups for millennia. We're discovering it anew in the, the scientific context. You know, this way of looking at the universe makes me wonder if we need a new ecology of things. For most of human history, one of the dominant beliefs has been panpsychism, the sense that everything is alive and has a living presence, and that my writing table, for example, contains the same molecules as a cloud or a tree, and therefore it deserves to be honored. So this way of looking at the universe brings us back to the miracle, miracle of creation, and it asks us to regard things and to yeah. have an I-thou relationship with the material world. Is, is that the way you see it? Uh, exactly. I don't know what more I could add to that. That's a great statement. The, the I-thou relationship, yes. 
Carson McCullers has a wonderful thing. She says, if you want to love a human being, first you have to love a rock, then you have to love a tree, then you have to love a cloud. And and she has this, it, it's not exactly a hierarchy, but it's an embrace of things. The more you're capable of loving the natural world around you, the more you're capable of loving another human being because you can love creation in all of its aspects. Yeah, let me give you a response from mathematical cosmology. One of the uh, true mysteries that we've touched upon in science has to do with the, the way in which the universe is expanding. The simplest way of saying it is that if the universe were altered even slightly in its rate of expansion, there would never have been the structures we find about us. And so this is, it's almost impossible to believe, but this is coming from the work of Stephen Hawking. He was the first one to calculate that if you altered the expansion, even by one part in a trillion, then there there wouldn't be this amazing universe we live in today. That means then that a planet like Earth was aimed at by the dynamics in the early universe. I just sort of quiver because in science, we can never talk about the universe having directions, but that's starting to break down. We're beginning to think about intention. That is exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's a form of intention we can call cosmic intention that has to do with the dynamics in the early, early universe. I'm saying that the universe intended stars, intended life, intended what we see about us, and that includes boulders. So I, I got this, this huge charge when I first learned this from Stephen Hawking, and I realized that a rock is intended by the universe. It is a cosmological construction. This is a universe that was going to make sure that rocks and boulders and life came fluttering forth. And that is a step into regarding each thing in the universe as sacred or holy or something along that order. I remember being fascinated by the pre-Socratic philosophers when I was in college with their emphasis on the sacredness of earth, air, water, and fire. And when you read them, it was like reading a hymn. And they were looked down upon as, as being naive and unscientific and lacking in any empirical notion of the universe. <laughs> and, and yet it was this magic that, that you got from, from reading the pre-Socratics where you knew that things had intention and sacredness. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I first came across Pythagoras and and, you know, I'm, I'm studying mathematics and physics and loving all of it. And Pythagoras talked about the music of the spheres. Just that phrase did something to me at a, at a deep level. And I, I never got over it. Somehow or another, I, I knew that, that Pythagoras and others, they were in touch with something that, that can easily escape the reach of a lot of mathematical science. Well, is that why you set your uh, film, The Journey of the Universe, on the island where Pythagoras was born? Absolutely. You went back to the source. I went to the source, <laughs> exactly. I think we live in an era that's something like the pre-Socratic. We need bold, new intuitions about the nature of the universe. 
and not just coming from science by any means, but, you know, coming from human intuition. This is one of the, the great statements of Thomas Berry that we need to reinvent the human at the species level. So it's not just that we need a new economic system or, or new religions, new education. We need to reinvent ourselves as cosmological beings. You know, to come alive with the sense of, of the awe and the, and the glory and the grandeur of our existence. I think that's the deepest meaning of what we're trying to do at Reinventing Home. People have an impoverished sense of home today because we don't look at it in this sense that you and I are discussing now. We don't look at the sense of our home in the body of creation, in the body of the world. So the idea is, who are we? How do we become ourselves within a new concept of home? And how big does that concept of home get to be? That's beautiful. I love it. Now, listen, Valerie, you asked me the question, but I, I would love to know what image comes to mind for you with the word home. I think of the home in many ways as something that's always revealing itself. There's always a, a slight curve, and there's always something new to be discovered right around the corner. In order to really understand who we are and where, where we belong, we need to understand that we do come from 14 trillion years of evolution of something mysterious and wonderful. Yeah. Beautiful. So I've got to ask you this, because I know you've thought about this a lot. What do you think is the role of chaos in cosmic evolution? Yeah, chaos and destruction. And it's a, it's a difficult topic uh, because we, you know, we fear destruction and we fear our own annihilation. One of the things that, that has uh, struck me is the way in which the universe relies upon destruction. Uh, it relies upon chaos. Just to give you an example, when we examine particles coming forth from the quantum field, now in the laboratories, we see that they come apart in pairs. And so uh, a proton will come forth with an antiproton. And then if they, if they meet, they, they both annihilate. Our current understanding is that there was this huge upsurge of particles, but a slight asymmetry set in. And so for every uh, billion antiprotons, there were a billion plus one protons. So right from the beginning, there's this massive annihilation. Let me just give one more example to tie it in. It was a big shock for for biologists to discover that over the course of three and a half billion years of life, at least 99% of the species that came forth have gone extinct. So, so that you see, they're like, whoa, the, the species that we have around here, they are less than 1% of the number of species that came forth. So this is the universe we have to deal with. It creates all these forms of life, and then it destroys them. And so annihilation and creativity uh, go together. In this universe, there's no way we are going to eliminate chaos or disruption or annihilation. It's the universe thrives on death. 
is absolutely essential to the ongoing creativity of the universe. So the question I ask is, what aspects of my life should be annihilated? Or another way of saying is this, what parts of my psychology are actually blocking my own creative development? And that, this is a way then uh, to, to enter consciously into the annihilation process of the universe. Because what happens with these vast annihilations is that new life comes forth. And it's, it's life that's, that has novel features, just to sum it up. The universe hates to be bored. The universe is, is deeply committed to bringing forth something new and interesting. And so that, that's how at least I, I look at the, um, this terrible dynamic of chaos and destruction. It is, it's part of what is needed for the universe to show a form of beauty that has not yet manifested. You know, I have to say, I find that a great relief, that explanation, because I feel we're, we are so precarious in so many ways, and we need a framework of consciousness to, to understand the remarkable time that we're living through. Yeah. What really fascinates me about this explanation is that plus one proton. Yeah. All these protons and antiprotons, and then the plus one just skips through. <laughs> yeah, all right. It reminds me of the Leonard Cohen song about the crack yeah. where the light comes through. Nice. That's and nice. how if you can hang on to that plus one that makes it through the fence, yeah. you can still continue to be an activist. Yeah. You can still believe that what you do counts to be part of that plus one proton that makes it through the fence. I like it. I want to follow up with one final question, and I want to know how we can help our children feel more at home in the universe and in these concepts that we've been discussing. Do we need to uh, become better storytellers? My wife teaches uh, grade school, and, and she was when she was teaching um, kindergarten, uh, she asked me to come in and talk to the students. You know, so there I am, I'm talking to these five-year-olds, and when I'm, I'm teaching, um, you know, adults, I point out the ways in which Newtonian science and classical physics have been replaced by quantum theory and relativity and all the rest of it. Well, obviously, these kids are, are not going to know anything about that. And so I started to tell them about how the universe, you know, grew up from the seed, and then I, I focused on how the stars created the atoms of our body. And here we are. And I said, each of these atoms actually came from a star. And this little kid in the first row is looking up at me. And as I was talking, he lifted his hand up. And he didn't move his eyes away from mine. He lifted his hand up and touched his cheek. It was so fantastic. He, he, was, he was entering into his a, a participation in the universe and recognizing that he was a cosmological being. So I, I do think that we need to become better storytellers. I do think that these young minds, they're prepared. They're all ready to hear the truth. They know this in a, um, 
an intuitive way because the, the very atoms of the body did come from the star. So I'm not telling the atoms anything they don't know. <laughs> That's great. Our bodies recognizing themselves as part of the bodies of the universe. Why not? You know? Oh, that's a beautiful story, Brian. I really love that. <laughs> you know, that, that really takes it down to something very simple and yeah. this notion that home must embrace all of nature, all of the elements, all yeah. of the different portions of our bodies, and all of the stars. Exactly. Thank you so much for this conversation today. And I hope everybody will go out and watch your marvelous film, The Journey of the Universe, and read The Hidden Heart of the Cosmos, where you bring together so beautifully the role of the scientist to ask questions and the role of the storyteller to give images that, that help us see deeper into the questions. Thanks, Valerie. What I, what I love you. about what you do, Brian, is that you're always taking us home. That's great. Oh, thank you. That's so nice.